Thanks for tuning in to the HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney. The HR Uprising is focused on helping forward-thinking people professionals deliver real lasting value in their organisations. I'm a chartered psychologist, speaker and trainer, and recently authored the best-selling business book, How to Be a Change Superhero. My day job is founder and CEO of software and training business Actus. This gives me the opportunity to work with other businesses like yours. We are focused on building a better workplace for people wherever they are located with the help of our performance, learning and talent management software and our training and consultancy services. Every week on the podcast, I will be covering different topics and challenges, joined by relevant experts and real-life people professionals. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy and get value from this week's episode. Hi, everybody. Just a quick message to say, if you're interested in working with me on the topic of change... I've just agreed dates um, kicking off the 30th of September 2021 for our next cohort of change superheroes. It's a really small select group we tend to work with. We have three um, three modules, different aspects of change, and you get free 360 feedback and say I run it personally. And I really, really love running this um, particular training session. It tends to be HR, OD and occasionally business professionals who are involved in change. And it's really, really practical. So if you're looking for some self-development on the topic of change, then why not take a look at our website and do get in touch if you'd like to know more about that. Hello and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. And I'm delighted to have a repeat guest here by popular demand. Um, I've got Vicky Roberts from Vista Employer Services and Vicky is an employment lawyer and you might remember we did a podcast a few months ago and there's so much going on at the moment where things are changing in the changing workplace that we felt it would be really really helpful to get together and talk a bit about how to manage hybrid working from a, a legal point of view. Um, Vicky, you're saying that you're getting different kind of queries. Welcome, don't to introduce yourself again and then perhaps tell us what you're hearing in this area. What's the impact? Yes. Hello, Lucinda. Yeah. And hello, um, everybody who's who's listening in. Um, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, 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 Vista is a, um, an organisation that supports uh, employers and we're hearing a lot of discussions around the hybrid working environment. How do we go from the, um, the immediate term we needed to respond to government rules and guidance through to what's right for our organisation? And the discussion is centering around how do we implement flexible working at, at an individual level? Do we rely on the existing legal framework, the right to request flexible working and deal with it on a case-by-case basis and all that's involved in that process? Or do we set a policy that allows us to kind of set a level of tone, if you like, or, or, or ethos that we're trying to create and encourage managers to deal with things informally um, with their teams. And there are pros and cons to both. So I thought it might be worth airing some of those so that if that's something that our listeners are, are, are exploring, they can kind of weigh those things up and see what's right for their organisation. I think that's really helpful because I've seen that on um, a couple of forums recently. And actually one of the clients that I've talked about, um, certainly the larger public sector type clients, maybe getting some of that um pushback and they don't quite know how to handle it because I think sometimes the larger organizations 
it takes more to build a new policy, etc. Um, I suppose there's also a third option, which is do nothing, right? Or do, in, as in kind of ignore it and just carry on and hope it works itself out. Um, maybe that's even yeah. worse, but uh, there's probably some people I think that aren't even doing policies and maybe, I don't know, the people there don't know about flexible working requests. And, and perhaps that's the angle for me to start with. As you know, I, I'm not, I, I think more, I'm much more of a lay person on this. I do remember there being some law about people being entitled to flexible working requests, but could you just explain what the legal position is for employers? Yeah, of course. And, and it, it is an important context for this. You're absolutely right. So employees with over 26 weeks service have a right to request flexible working. Um, and uh, employers are, are an under under an obligation to handle that request reasonably as the legislation describes. And there's quite a lot of kind of more practical guidance that ACAS gives about what that really means. Um, so whichever route an organization chooses, yes, there is always that kind of expectation on them to allow that request to be made. It's also, I think, worth bearing in mind that the government is just about um, to announce some further consultation. There was a manifesto commitment that's been sort of repeated in various guises earlier this year about extending that flexible working request right. Now, it's been described as providing flexible working by default, but actually what that really means, I, it remain, remains to be seen. The CIPD, for example, is lobbying for the right to request for everybody, so from day one of employment. So it's not quite that by default as it sounds. And speaking entirely personally, I don't see how a government can make provision for flexible working by default in a way. There's got it's got to be triggered by the employee in some way because you know at the at the at the bottom of it all is a contract of employment that specifies hours of work, where you work, those sorts of things. Employees need that certainty. So that by default, I, I wonder whether it's going to be something about perhaps placing a, a higher burden on employers to justify refusals than currently stands, and also perhaps giving the employees the right to request from day one as per the CIPD's lobbying position. So yeah, all of that needs to be borne in mind. So is that a COVID thing or were they going to do that anyway? Well, it was no, it was a, it was pre-COVID actually, because it, it was um, a manifesto commitment from 2019. So it was just pre-COVID, interestingly. And would you expect that to I mean, make any massive difference to? I mean, that, well, how quickly would that come in? If, if they're consulting, it's not going to make a difference for people who are dealing over the next 12 months with. No. With flexible working requests, is it? Um, unlikely, unlikely, because it didn't appear, for example, in the employment bill that was announced in this Queen's speech. So if consultation is only just being announced and it's not even out yet, it will be a while. No two ways about it. Is it applicable to every business of every size and every... Yes, yeah. yes. But interestingly, the right to request at the moment only applies to employees. So for those that have different types of, of working models that, and, and the staff that aren't employees, then the right to request doesn't apply to them at the moment as it stands. So the thing is, though, the, the right to request, again, being simplistic, is kind of whatever if there's no onus on the employee to grant it. Is, I mean, mm. what, so how many of them, I, I guess there's, there's things that they have to do to demonstrate or, or how rigorous is it if they say, no, actually, it doesn't suit us? 
Mm, it's a good question. So, so the standard is not that high on an employer, actually. Um, the, the, the requirement very, is very much around the process that's followed. The, uh, if you are going to refuse a request, looking at this negatively for a moment, mm. um, then there are eight statutory grounds that you that as an employer, you have to get your refusal within. But they are defined quite broadly. And the standard of proof in terms of the kind of rigor that a tribunal will apply to that decision making is not that high. I mean, they will look to, to make sure that the decisions are made on the correct facts of the case, for example, and they will make sure that you've that as an employer, you've got your reason within one of those eight statutory grounds. Um, but they, they don't necessarily kind of test the commercial credibility, for example, of the decision making much beyond that. There are one or two traps for the unwary here, of course, which are if the reason for the request relates to somebody's ill health and that is a disability, then that obviously brings in the duty to make a reasonable adjustment and the standard is higher there. And also there is that risk of indirect discrimination ground on the basis of, say, gender, if the reason for the request is some kind of childcare responsibilities, for example. So, you know, there are there are other parts of the legal framework that engage here that, that we need to think about. But flexible working requests per se, the standard is reasonably low um, in terms of the employer fulfilling the legal requirements. Because it's quite interesting there, isn't it? So the whole childcare thing, that's been maybe, that's, that's perhaps almost a separate one to look at in its own right, because I think that's a bit of a minefield for people in terms of what you can and can't do and um, just because of the fact that there the, were the, the months where people had to suck it up, I guess, in terms of employers and employees having children at home, which wouldn't normally be acceptable. Mm. So um, mm. if someone applies to have flexible working from the point of view of the, um, the employee, you can go through these eight points. Are they kind of quite obvious points that people would? Is it worth running through them? Are they trying to run through them quickly what they are? Yeah, of course. So they are things like um, the burden of additional costs. So, for example, if actually the pattern that the employee wants to work is, say, let's say part time, but they need to recruit to cover full time hours, okay. an employer can say there's additional cost in that and we can't bear that. Um, there's kind of quality and performance mark marks of this as well. So there will be a de detrimental impact on the quality of the of the service that's being provided or the performance and that can include the performance of the employee as well um, there can be about work organization so um, we can't reorganize the work to be covered by other people's uh, by other people because of the pattern that's being requested or that when the employee wants to work there isn't sufficient work for them to do so if they want to work outside of core hours and actually there isn't going to be the work available to them. There's that sort of thing. Um, one that often comes up in the context of job share, if some is if if actually the the job is a full time equivalent role, um, then in that situation, um, the, the 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 flexible working that's requested means that the the that the employer doesn't think the other part of that role can be recruited to nobody's going to apply to work here one day a week for example mm. then that can be a reason um, and there's there's also uh, rules around um, uh, reasons around structural changes so we're planning a broader restructure that sort of thing um, but they're all well sort of set out in both the ACAS guidance and the legislation in terms of the reasons for refusal with some good examples actually in the ACAS guide as well 
I mean, I can see that, right? It's those flexible, but the whole mentality of those flexible requests is about people asking to work flexibly in terms of hours and working week, isn't it? It's not saying, yeah. so So I'm thinking if I say I want to work flexibly and I, that means I want to work two days in the office and three days at home, so I'm not asking to work, so it's purely location and I've got yeah. a history of being productive over the last 15 months. Doesn't that make it harder for the employees but it makes it different. Those work, those rules are written for people who are asking to work different hours, aren't they, to what they're contracted as opposed to location? Yes, exactly right. And I don't think it's impossible to be able to answer that, but you're absolutely right. It's harder. And certainly from an employee's mindset perspective, look, I've been entirely productive. Nobody's criticised my performance. Why on earth can't I continue to work from home? But I think that the, if the organisation generally is shifting to going back into the work workplace and therefore that person is going to be the exception rather than the norm that shifts the parameters in which you 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 consider and that's where yeah. you've got your detrimental impact on quality or performance really are the two reasons that will come in here but you can see what i mean about the kind of atmosphere that all of this is created can't you in terms of if it is just people wanting to work part work from from home part of the time it isn't necessarily about that more sort of structural change to the working pattern or whatever do we really need to go down that flexible working route or could we do it more informally and encourage managers to have the conversations and deal with it locally um Mm. there are barriers no no doubt to that in terms of doing that and anything that does you know impact on hours worked or um how somebody is is pay or holidays or benefits is calculated then that's probably better dealt with more formally so that we get that clarity but actually things that are just about the location of work, for example, is that something that could be dealt with informally? Is the debate that, that, that's going on at the moment that I've seen? I mean, that's just from that conversation we just had there. So I'm thinking I'm somebody now who wants to work more from home than in the office, for argument's sake. My, my employer wants people to go back into the office on the whole. At the moment, if they were to say, no, you can't do it, based on productivity or performance, they wouldn't have any evidence to back that up. Plus, it would really cheese me off as the employee says, you know, and so you're kind of, Mm. it's a bit blunt, uh, blunt at all in a sort of grey environment. So again, your point is about it's a bit too heavy handed. Maybe it's better just to let things evolve a bit. Of course, the risk is then lots of people work remotely and the employer doesn't get to bring everybody back in, whether the question there is whether they perform or not. But it's hard to turn around and say, no, suddenly you're not performing because we've made everybody else come in and therefore now no, you're not. It's so grey. The area is quite grey there now, isn't it? Yeah, yes, it is. And of course, when you're kind of giving reasons like this, you're probably not going to be able to just look backwards in terms of saying, well, actually, look at that past performance. You're saying, look at the the performance in the context of the rest of the team that's going to be working in the office and the need for collaboration and the need to, you know, cross-fertilize in terms of ideas and that sort of thing. Yes, we coped, we managed and no, your performance wasn't you know, underperforming at that time, but now we're moving back into the office, then we want to kind of make sure that we've got more of that going on. That's how you're going to have to position, I suspect, that going forward. Yeah. Um, At risk risk of um, demotivating some people who, I I think there's a real talent risk here for um, employers in some of these cases. I've just, literally, I was just doing a webinar earlier about performance and hybrid, and I was asking people as to whether or not they saw there was a change in performance remotely. And one of the um, comments was that they felt that the people who were naturally highly motivated and autonomous 
there was no difference to their performance. They were pretty highly motivated and they were delivering to a high level. Um, mm. Whereas the people who were a bit less autonomous, maybe needed a bit more sort of pushing anyway, they're the ones that um, were working less effectively. So this is just an anecdote. I can't evidence it, but this is an anecdote. But that's the interesting thing is that um, the people that you're going to peeve by forcing them to come in if they want to work in a hybrid environment are the ones that probably are performing in that context. Um, yeah. Uh, as in they're the ones that might not want to come back I'm not saying the people who are happily twiddling their thumbs would want to come back either but it's just a dilemma it's an interesting one isn't it but also I think there's there's looking at people at various points in their career of course because certainly those that are earlier on in their careers value very much that informal chit chat what do you think we should do about that how do you how would you handle that who's the person to speak to here and actually sort of there is almost a type piece this is it and the greater good therefore of the experienced people being in mm-hmm. as well as the more junior people sort of type thing yeah and this is where the informality side of it I think it is something to consider because the problem with the the challenge with the flexible working route is it's a permanent change if it's granted and so that sense of goodness knows where we're going to be feels quite a difficult decision to make at the moment mm. um uh, whereas if um things can be dealt with if from a more informal perspective it may be that actually we can bend and sway a little bit as we as we go along I think the other benefit from the organization's perspective is that if you set a policy and then give managers permission if you like to have those one-on-one discussions and set things up informally you can set the tone a little bit more in terms of saying our expectations are that we'll see everybody at least twice a week or you know I'm just making that up but you know something Mm -hmm. that gives you a gives them a sense of sort of expectation setting as to what we should be aiming towards whereas flexible working requests in terms of any policies that that talk about the statutory right are very much you know you need to set out your reasons why you want to do this and it all feels rather you know formal and finger waggy and and that sort of thing because that's how the legislation is structured yes and and yeah and then you've got to go to a tribe and you know it's all painful as well to sort of it's it's not collaborative in terms of let's make something work and actually over the last 15 months employers and employees have had to be collaborative to make the best of things like i mean there's something there as well you could feel quite peeved when people have everyone's been flexible haven't they to to try and make the best of a difficult situation so I don't yes. think it's a good time for organisations to put their foot down necessarily. The, uh, so your point there is basically you're handling it informally, yet you're saying set a policy. And in my head, I think policies are quite formal. So um, is that, do you want to explain that and what you mean by that? Or, or you're saying have a policy and some of the businesses we've been working with have had sort of behaviours, so clarity around behaviours, your point there about what do we mean by being visible or attendance in the office? So they're more of a, a sort of a, a behavioural charter, but they have got some policy things. So can you explain yeah. to me what you mean by the difference? Yes, and maybe policy is the wrong language, actually, on my part. It, you, it, it's all, almost, a, as you say, a, a statement of principle, which says we are, as an organisation, supportive of hybrid working within these parameters. Speak to your manager and agree something that works for you and your team type, type thing. So it sort of it is... is um, that permission, if you like, for both employees and managers to have a good quality conversation and come up with something that works for them. The challenge with that I, that I've seen is that in certain organisations, unless managers feel capable to have that good quality conversation, they will they will react negatively to that flexibility um, in terms of being able to have that conversation. They don't know how to do it. 
But also, I think there is a trust point here as well, which is if managers don't feel they're trusted by the organisation to to actually implement something that works for them, they will shy away from doing it. Um, Also, employees need to feel trust with their manager that they won't sort of pull the rug as they see it once something has been arranged because your kind of parameters will will sort of set this, this this is an informal arrangement, it isn't a change to your terms and conditions, it's a working arrangement and we'll keep it under review. Sometimes employees struggle with that level of trust, if you like, within the organisation that they will, that, 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 that what they agree will be, will be stuck to. And that's when you start to see people wanting to make flexible working requests in order to be able to get the certainty that they feel they need. And I can also imagine what would happen there is if you do disseminate it down to manager level, there is a risk of inconsistency. So let's say my manager really trusts me and is open to it and your manager isn't. We're then not treat, being treated the same and that that will give a sense of dissatisfaction. So does it mean, therefore, that it's better to have this statement of intent or even define what the expectations are, even though it's not a policy, whatever our word is, at an organisational level, so that there is a sort of clarity and expectation across the piece, and then yes. about how people apply it. Yeah, I think so. So sort of almost like a this is our minimum expectation. So we wouldn't be expecting anybody would be working permanently from home. We uh, and therefore that we would expect people to be in perhaps two days a week as a minimum but actually how you arrange that with your manager is up to you sort of type thing so there are some parameters around it is what I've seen where where flexible working kind of is being dealt with informally in that more here's our kind of statement of principle or policy that we're going to take around it um but uh, uh yeah as I say then the devil then becomes into the detail doesn't it in terms yeah. of the capability of that manager to have that good quality conversation with their team member. Um, I mean, that's all trainable, but that in itself is an exercise, of course. And, also always, and that's always been something that's difficult for people to have. But again, at least if you have defined some high level expectations or parameters, there is yes. a benchmark of expectation, um, which, of course, you haven't really had over the last 15 months because it's been survive or you know do the best we can and given the circumstances so that's yes, the, quite. um that's where I think having that kind of clarity is there um is there a point where there is uh, where this leaks into policies as well though it also becomes quite confusing with things like um if you're expecting people to come into the office the contracts and paying for travel and the whole sort of switch of power in terms of where people initially go oh wow I've saved myself four grand on train fares suddenly yeah. spend 30 quid on a train fare they then want to get charged back they, they yes. hold, it's all about where you've got to isn't it your expectations or sort of what the status quo is that's right that's right and and, and that's the key difference isn't it because of course if we're doing this informally we're not changing the workplace location we are saying that we are giving you permission, if you like, to not work from the location that's specified in your contract, if you look at it in purely kind of legal terms. Right. Yeah. So that does have a different, it does have a different impact. But all of that does need to be explained, as might be the need to be able to say, look, if operational needs arise, we can give you on short notice, uh, notice to come back in. Yeah. Um, and, and again, that kind of level of of ability to make the change at organizational level is going to influence certain employees feelings around am I happy to work within that environment or am I just going to rely on my statutory right which is to request a permanent change to the contract which takes us back to the flexible working route Um, 
what I think we need to avoid if we're going down this more informal route is get to a point of a bit of eye rolling. Oh, for goodness sake, they've put their flexible working request in because you're then considering that flexible working request from entrenched positions, which is never going to give you the best platform for making kind of good collaborative decisions about the that request. Yeah, okay. So, um, so it sounds like I think we're kind of erring towards the sort of clarity at an organisational level, but with some flexibility and some trust is probably the pragmatic way forward at the moment, you, 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 I mean, I guess you don't give advice like that. You're more sort of saying, what are the pros and cons of each of them? I mean, um, it, I, I, would you make recommendations? Where would you sit on terms of things? I think it's difficult to do it to do it in the abstract uh, because mm-hmm. I think you would want to work through. Okay, so what's the environment like? What are the challenges in terms of? Um, allowing these things what's our managing manager capability in terms of being able to have these good quality conversations that sort of thing Mm. but hopefully what these sort of pros and cons that we've just run through will give a bit of sort of uh, almost like a checklist of things to consider as to which way perhaps HR might recommend do we go down a route of saying look we'll manage any requests through a flexible working route or let's set some put some policy and some um, parameters around it and encourage managers to deal with it more informally bearing in mind that there is always the flexible working underpin and actually we might need that if the nature of the flexible working that somebody's asking for is a change of working pattern working hours that sort of thing that has an impact on pay benefits that sort of thing then you're better off dealing with that through a change of contract route which of course then takes you down the flexible working route yeah I mean yeah that is an interesting one I said as it goes into a different area where it's become great whereas somebody was telling me the other day that um again it's about norms people got used to that actually okay if you're at home it's fine to go and pick up your kids and yeah you're having a delayed lunch break or whatever and the whole high trust thing but actually it's not okay for the little kids for them to be still kicking around or or is it okay it depends on your environment um for you to then uh, pick up work from five till seven um, in the evening. It, I guess that does depend on the situation by situation, because if you are also someone who's expected to get on a call to Australia or America at any time of the day or night, then, but that is so horses for courses, it's almost roll by roll, isn't it? And certainly business by business. And I think you raise a really interesting point here, because one of the benefits of the flexible working process is that it, it facilitates that good quality conversation. Yeah. Because the employee is required to kind of put up, put together what they are looking for and what the, the ACAS guide sort of talks about, lay out what they think the implications of the business are, there's a good platform to have that conversation to say, help me understand how you'd manage if that X, Y, and Z happened. Mm-hmm. So when you are equipping managers to have the conversation informally, it's, it would be good to ex- start helping them explore those conversations, good quality, you know, questioning techniques, I guess, in a way to be able to work through. So we've still got as good quality decisions being made, but you just don't have the downsides of the formal process. Yeah, you still yeah. want as good quality got decisions be being made. It's all getting to clarity, isn't it? It's talking about it sufficiently that you're not kind of both assuming something. Because I always thought when, you know, underperformance, yeah. I would say one of the main re- reasons is to be able you know, different perceptions of something. It's a lack of clarity, a lack of shared clarity. So if you discuss these yeah. things and nail them down, go, is that okay or isn't that okay? It's okay in these circumstances, not in other circumstances, then you do reduce chances of it um, yes. becoming yes. A, a real issue, which is it, which is an informal route, but it requires great communication and documentation yes. and, and on openness and honesty. 
that's it. And I think the other thing just to add to that as well is if you are going to go down the informal route, make sure that because this policy almost by definition is all you know, parameters, whatever we're going to call it, is, is by definition new into the organisation. Encourage managers to almost go through it line by line with their team members and and so that they can see what the implications of that are. So if there's a line in that policy document that says we may need to call you in at short notice, that's been drawn to their attention so that yeah. you, you don't get that I didn't realise at the point in which it needs to be used. So it does go back to having something, whether it's a policy or a kind of set of it, some some sort of principles that you can at least draw back on and, and have that conversation Definitely. about um, yeah. in terms of expectation management. Brilliant. OK, that's really useful. Thank you, Vicky. Um, it, would you, this, this nice little summary that you, you know, this PowerPoint, haven't you? Are you OK for me to put a link to it either on your website or our website for people to be able to download it? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So so it just gives you the pros and cons of both. I'll I'll, I'll give, get you a link to our website, of course, and then and we'll, can, we'll send it from the page and they can go to it and download it from, mm. from there. Fantastic. Most definitely. Great. Thank you so much for joining, Vicky. And in terms of if they want to get hold of you um, uh, personally or professionally, what's the best route for people to get hold of you? Uh, my, my email uh, ad- address is uh, vroberts at vista-online.co.uk. We'll make sure that that's available. There's also yeah. our our general contact details and our website address at the bottom of this um, sort of pros and cons document. So yeah, drop us a line anytime. Yeah, we'll put them all on the, on the show pages as usual. Lovely. Thanks so much for joining, Vicky. A pleasure. I really hope you found this week's episode useful and enjoyable. If you did, perhaps you could recommend us to a friend or colleague or give us a review on your platform of choice. It really helps new listeners to find us. Now you can access links to any of the information mentioned in this show via the website www.hruprising.com. Further free resources are also available at www.actus.co.uk. There you can also find out more about our software and training solutions. Finally, why not join our LinkedIn group, The HR Uprising, to share ideas and collaborate with other like-minded people professionals. Thank you for listening to The HR Uprising podcast.